Hey there, everybody, and happy Valentine's Day. Welcome to another episode of the Dutch Podcast, where integrative medicine providers and patients can learn more about hormones and explore the body's most complex communication system. I'm Dr. Jacqueline Sweeten, Chief Medical Officer for Dutch. As a clinician, I focused on fertility, very appropriate for Valentine's Day, and used Dutch testing to uncover the role that hormones play in a couple's ability to conceive. And now on the Dutch Podcast, I get to be joined by experts in functional medicine to help us make sense of our body's hormones and take the guesswork out of treating hormone-related issues. Coming up on this week's episode, in honor of the special V-Day, we are getting spicy and talking about sex ed for adults, what you wish your middle school health teacher taught you, but they never did. Today, we get the pleasure of spending time with Lindsay Sapansky. She is a board-certified women's health nurse practitioner and has been practicing as a women's health nurse practitioner for over the past decade. Prior to that, she worked as an RN in labor and delivery for five years, so she is all about women's care. She's had the honor and privilege of caring for and comforting thousands of women and families through some of their highest and lowest moments during puberty, pregnancy, childbirth, postpartum, and menopause. She grew up in a small town in northern Minnesota, completed her Bachelor of Science in Nursing, a Master's in Nursing, and then went on for her Women's Health Nurse Practitioner degree in 2011. Lindsay's worked in lots of different and diverse settings, including a traditional OBGYN practice, a gynecology-only practice, a family practice, a functional medicine and bioidentical hormone replacement practice, a urogynecology practice, and we are lucky enough to have her as a clinical educator with Dutch for over a year. She's had the opportunity to work with and learn from some of the most advanced and well-sought-out providers in healthcare, and now she is one that we seek out. And we're so excited to talk with you today, Lindsay. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. This is fun. So happy Valentine's Day. (laughs) I know, happy Valentine's Day. And it's like so great to get to talk about such a fun topic of sex ed Mm -hmm. on Valentine's Day. And no, this is not about things you should try later on tonight after dinner and wine. (laughs) (laughs) We are the Dutch podcast, so we like to stick with the basics of biology. But I mean, I think one thing that we've learned from our years in the hormone space is that we assume so many people know the basics of what happens. But in fact, we get practitioners who call to ask us what the menstrual cycle is and why it happens. And Mm -hmm. it really, I think the more time we spend here, like highlights a gap in learning, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's, I I think like when we, we talked about this topic, it's, or, you know, like got the headline for it, it right away. I was like, well, you know, all these years of just even being in the OBGYN practice and there's just no understanding of even when they should be trying to conceive or when they're trying to avoid conceiving. And there's just, there's, we're missing some of those key basic kind of just those basic entry level of like just understanding your body. And so as racy and exciting as it is for us that work in this industry, you know, others may find it not as, you know, you know, super racy, but at least it can kind of help them better understand like what's going on throughout their cycles and how, how it can impact relationships and things like that. Totally. And, you know, it might not be racy, but I think a lot of people are a little squeamish about the Mm -hmm. details of menstrual cycles. And so Hopefully, Lindsay and I will make it fun for you today, and you can walk away from here feeling really well educated. And just want to share, like, I had this patient when I was in family practice, and I'm sure you have a thousand stories like this, too. (laughs) She was in her 60s, um, still menstruating, wasn't menopausal, 
And she came in to see me for recurrent yeast infections. That's what she'd written on her form. We're just diving right in now. We're yeah. like kicking yeah. off the episode talking about yeast infections. So it's women's health. Anyhow, so. <laughs> let's just do it. Right. Yeah. So anyway, she comes in and when I asked her to describe what was going on, she's like, like all my life since I was a teenager, every month, every single month I get a, a yeast infection in the middle of my cycle. And I was like, gosh, you know, that's horrible that you have this recurrent infection. And so I started asking her like, well, what's going on? And she describes all this discharge that she gets and, you know, what a problem it's been and that she's tried all the creams and like everything, but nothing seems to work. It just keeps coming back every month. And so after speaking with her, I was like, dang, she had fertile cervical mucus mm-hmm. and she had absolutely no idea. And she thought something was wrong with her and she's lived her whole life and, treating and normal. normal. Really, and it led me to think like we are doing such a disservice Mm -hmm. to people by not screening this from the rooftop when girls first get their periods. Really, yeah. I mean, the cervical mucus. I mean, it changes right before ovulation, so it's going. We get this increase in discharge. It's it's more um, thin and slippery, Uh, and then afterwards, it'll kind of dry up a little bit, maybe get a little thicker or non-existent. So it's very normal to have normal discharge and, and it fluctuate throughout the month. So that's, that's heartbreaking to think that she went her whole, you know, menstrual life cycle thinking that there was something wrong with her every month when really it was just a normal physiological process of what we would expect for those timings of the cycles. Yeah, that's how. And I discharge. I mean, since we're off topic of discharge, um, you know, so commonly I had so many young and you know patients that would come in and thinking there was something wrong because their discharge was kind of, you know, for lack of better terms, bleaching their underwear. And that's actually a very common occurrence. The the acidity of the cervical mucus and discharge can kind of bleach your undergarments or your, you know, your underwear. So they, they kept thinking there was something wrong with them. And it's like, well, no, this is actually a very common thing. And then there was so much education around, you know, you know, the vagina is a kind of a self-cleaning oven for lack of better terms. So leave it alone, let it do its thing. You don't need to be doing those aggressive scrubbing, you know, procedures or douching or perfumes, or it's really disrupting the normal flora there. And if you just leave it alone, I'm not talking about when they're having, you know, actual pain or, burning or itching or things like that. That's a different story. I'm talking about your just normal fluctuations and, and, you know, normal physiological process. Yeah, totally. So talk to me about what you think the biggest gaps are in learning and understanding. You brought up cervical mucus, so I'm guessing that's probably (laughs) a big one, but what are the big areas that, you know, over the years that you've been in practice, patients have come in to talk with you about that it points out like, wow, this is something that they were never taught. Yeah. Um, So there's a few things that I could probably, I mean, we could kind of go on for a while. I don't know how much time we have, but um, it is is kind of a testament of how much we're not teaching the simple biology of the, you know, the normal menstrual cycle and um, when they can conceive or get pregnant. So one of the things is, no, you cannot get pregnant all month long. Um, so there is kind of this sweet spot, this kind of average five to six day window that we would call the fertile window. Um, and really we only ovulate once a month. So kind of get really getting to know your menstrual cycle and those ebbs and flows and tracking and knowing things can actually kind of narrow down that, that window of when it would be the best time to conceive or to avoid trying to conceive. 
Um, if you're not looking for pregnancy, um, may need to use some backup method or barrier method during that six-day window. Um, another thing that is kind of really shocking to men and women is to find out that sperm can live inside a woman's body for up to five days. So if you had unprotected intercourse three days before ovulation and then you ovulate, you could get pregnant still. And so sometimes they'll be like convinced that they're like, well, you know, I didn't even ovulate until the 15th of the month that we had intercourse on, you know, the 11th of the month. And you're like, well, that, you know, the sperm could have been healthy sperm could have been living that long in that environment and you still can get pregnant. So that's, there's just kind of those key basics that they just were never taught. So they didn't know that they, you know, really should be cautious during that window if they're not trying to get pregnant. Um, also, you know, the libido, the libido, since we're talking about, you know, sex ed, the libido, it's normal for it to fluctuate. We, we don't always have a sex drive all month long. So sometimes women would come in and like, oh, you know, I just don't have the sex drive anymore. It's not there. Or it's, it's not as strong as it used to be. But, you know, maybe three days out of the month, I really, am, you know, feeling more frisky, you know, lovey. and yeah, yeah lovey, you know, and it really can, we can have these normal hormonal fluctuations that really our sex drive amps up during ovulation. So if you're not trying to get pregnant and you're, you know, your fertile window and you've been following those parameters, um, just know that you know, your partner or your wife or girlfriend, or, or, um, you might be feeling friskier during the time that you maybe should be avoiding, um, you know, intercourse doing that. But there's lots of things that you can do for tracking. You know, they have now identified the menstrual cycle as being the fifth um, vital sign for women. So that's kind of really important. You know, we always hear about blood pressure and heart rate and respiratory rate and temperature and things like that. But so common that it's I'm not saying it's normal, but it's common that women don't even know their their phases of their menstrual cycle or if they're skipping a whole phase of their menstrual cycle. It really causes disruption along the way. Um, so there's just, there's things that we should be really kind of taking that serious of our, if you're skipping cycles or they're ble heavy bleeding or pain or that th these are warning signs that something's off. Okay. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about like, because I think this is probably a question a lot of listeners have, mm -hmm. whether you're a patient, a woman or a practitioner, I think, you know, it can be tough to know, is this normal or is this abnormal? So Let's talk a little bit about what a normal menstrual cycle should look like. So let's talk about the bleeding phase of a menstrual mm -hmm. cycle. Like what's normal for a woman as far as like how much should they bleed and when? Yeah. How many days? Great. What should it be like? Yeah. So the average menstrual cycle is about 28 days, but there is some fluctuation. So it can be anywhere from like 28 up to like 34 days would be kind of considered a normal menstrual cycle. One of the key things that a lot of women don't realize is we call day one of the menstrual cycle the day you start bleeding, not when the period ends. And so commonly when someone was trying coming into the office and they were maybe trying to conceive and they're like, well, my period ended on this day. So I started counting and I should have been day 14 here. But then and I'm like, no, 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 you're already off depending on when, you know, how long your period is. Day one is the day that you're starting to start bleeding. Mm. So that's when the clock starts. And the average menstrual cycle lasts probably uh, around five to seven days, um, can be a little bit less, but shouldn't really be longer than seven days. Really should not be having, you know, should be 
minimal discomfort, if at all. And for the amount of bleeding, they should not be bleeding through or soaking through a pad or a tampon more than every one to two hours. That would be considered excessive bleeding. Yeah, so if you're bleeding great. past that seven window or you're kind of soaking through a pad or a tampon more frequently during those heavier flow days, that may indicate a big imbalance as well. Yeah. I usually tell women like, you know, when you're getting your period, like you are getting kind of a contraction of your uterus mm-hmm. that's expelling the blood. So feeling a little bit crampy and uncomfortable or like bloaty, like a lot of women describe it as feeling layer, like they can kind of feel their pelvis differently, like a heaviness yeah. the day before their period's going to start. Like that is, I pretty much consider within the realm of normal, yes. but you're totally right. Like if you're uncomfortable or you're needing to take pain medication or stay in bed with a hot water bottle, mm-hmm. like that's really, we would consider in the functional medicine space, like not normal. Yeah. You know, there should be no reason that you should have to live with that. And normally we can uncover a reason for that. The other piece that I see just to add to what you said is spotting. Mm-hmm. Um, I normally see like when we talk about day one, you know, I usually say it's your first day of full flow. And yeah. sometimes women can know that right away. And other times they're like, well, I don't know if it's full flow. Like I kind of spot for a few days before my cycle starts. And that to me is another like red flag for hormonal imbalance. Because really your period should start with your heaviest day being mm-hmm. that first day or the second day. But the first day is still like pretty heavy. Should if you're obvious. spotting for two or three days before the flow really comes, that's oftentimes associated with progesterone that's like not sticking around mm-hmm. long enough. And that can be due to kind of poor poor cell quality in your ovaries and the corpus luteum. So that's mm-hmm. another kind of piece I would add is if you have yeah. a lot of spotting before your cycle starts, that can be another sign of hormonal imbalance. Balance, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I kind of like for this kind of stuck with my younger patients and even even not younger patients, but kind of like calling them the seasons. So like your menstrual phase was the winter. You know, you kind of want to bundle up, be left alone. You know, that's your bleeding days. Um, Yeah. (laughs) And then your spring, you know, we get out of like, you know, menstrual bleeding and then we get into our spring phase, which is the follicular phase where that main follicle in the ovary starting to build up. We're trying to get to our dominant follicle, getting ready for for ovulation. So that's kind of springtime. Things are kind of blooming a little bit when it comes to the ovary. Then you get to summer and woo, we're feeling hot, you know, <laughs> we're getting a big spike with those hormones. And that's when we should be ovulating during our ovulatory phase. And then we have our fall. So it kind of fits, you know, the fall phase, which would we call the luteal phase. So those hormones, we've had our spike in our LH and our FSH or, you know, so we spike up for ovulation and then it comes back down. The estrogen's coming back down. But then our progesterone is kind of popping up during that luteal phase, during that second half of the menstrual cycle, during the fall phase. And that's really when we get our biggest peak of progesterone is in that we we really only surge progesterone about five to eight days out of the month. And if we don't get pregnant, then both the estrogen and progesterone continue to decline all the way. And then we slide back into the winter or, you know, the menstrual phase. So sometimes that kind of helps them when they can think of it as in seasons throughout the month of like, oh, did I skip? you know, my summer or spring, or did I, you know, like that's, that's an impairment. I love that analogy and I've never heard it before. And I, that is such a great like visual and tying it to something that everyone can relate to. That's, thank you for sharing that. That's totally awesome. Um, so we have talked a little bit about the menstrual cycle, like that Mm -hmm. is kind of a gap and you've talked about fertile mucus too. Can you talk a little bit about 
what is normal for like mucus changes throughout the four seasons? Um, so your menstrual cycle is going to be your bleeding phase. Um, typically during the follicular phase, there tends to be minimal discharge for most women. However, when you start to get closer to that ovulatory range, then you're going to get where things that discharge increases. It's a little bit more thin, slippery. And then when you get into your uh, luteal phase, the discharge starts to decline a little bit, a little less noticeable. It might be a little bit thicker just because it's kind of coming out of that that um, season, I guess, for lack of better terms. Um, so it does fluctuate throughout the month, but usually mid-cycle, you know, getting towards that ovulatory range, which ovulation, you know, everybody's cycles are slightly different, but we just would kind of roughhouse it being around day 15 to 18, depending on cycles, would be considered that ovulatory range. Um, and then your, your luteal range, we actually spend the most of our time in the menstrual cycle is in that luteal range when that progesterone is uh, peaking up and then it's getting that endometrial lining all nice and supportive for if there was to be, uh, you know, a conception. So it has somewhere to implant in. And then if we don't get pregnant, it sloughs off and we start the process all over again. So there are, it's normal to have ebbs and flows with that, including libido, ebbs and flows of the libido. Um, you know, we tend to um, maybe start to feel a little, you know, after we come out of the menstrual phase, we start to feel a little bit more energetic and kind of coming out of that. Um, and then definitely surging during ovulation. And then it kind of starts to decline again during that luteal phase where we're kind of going into a little bit more of a rest state. I love that you talk about libido and that might be something else. I mean, maybe we don't want to teach teenagers so much about libido, <laughs> but definitely like young women and women, because there is this like societal expectation that women are just like always ready to go. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's just this, like, I think men think that women are built that way, which is probably because that's how men are built. Right. Yeah, but, right. Um, <laughs> You know, women do have like seasons and cycles to libido. And one of my mentors, Tori Hudson, like when I took this kind of course with her on libido, one of the things she said she always asked her patients, which I love, is like, who has the problem with the libido? Like, is it you feeling like you're not able to engage as much as you would like to? Or is it someone else's expectation that you're ready yeah. to go? And let's make sure we clarify between those two things. Because- yeah. Whether libido is a health concern, you mm -hmm. know, it, it's not abnormal to mm -hmm. not be, you know, have a raging libido all right. cycle long. That's not, right. that's normal to feel right. like a couple days, yeah, summertime party, you're ready to go. <laughs> and there are other parts of the season where you want to just like tuck under a blanket and drink tea alone. You yeah. know, that's, that's okay. And I'd say, um, you know, working in the women's health arena for quite some time now, um, that is a very common and even men too, but coming in and saying, Hey, I want my hormones checked. I have a really low libido. I think I need testosterone because, you know, my neighbor and their cousin and their, their cousin's cousin are all on testosterone and they've never felt better, which is, it does, it can give you a boost, but I can tell you over and over and over again, how many times you can check those levels and they actually fall within normal parameters and very common. They really need to work on adrenal health instead of the sex hormone piece of it, because our sex hormone production and our desire for intercourse decreases when our adrenals are tanked or shot. Mm -hmm. And we see that so, I, I couldn't tell you how many times that a, a added adrenal workup piece can be so helpful because they really maybe don't need DHEA or testosterone. They really need to focus on that adrenal support and stress reduction is super important. Blood sugar balancing is super important. Sleep 
oh my goodness, the sleep is so important. That tends to go out the window when you, you know, have kids and demanding jobs and travel. And like, that's, it just affects so much stuff and our libido goes out the window with it. So when we start supporting the adrenals and getting back on track with that and really giving those nourishing, you know, building blocks to the adrenals again, the libido tends to come back with it. That's awesome. I mean, and you're right. Like if you're under a lot of stress, one, that stress can directly impact your like desire to engage with other people in any way, (laughs) right? If you're exhausted, but they also, it also causes hormonal changes, like, you know, changes in the cortisol release and HPA axis actually can cause changes to the reproductive hormones directly at all Mm -hmm. levels in the brain, in the ovaries and in the testes. And even at like receptor sites, like the number of receptors for hormones can actually change under stress where um, you could make all the hormone in the world, but your ovaries and your testes aren't listening anymore for it. They're just like, leave us alone, you know, (laughs) and that's part of that fight or flight response. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's pretty cool. I mean, that's one thing that's so nice about Dutch testing is that you can get a more comprehensive look. And that's one of the reasons why the Dutch team has built the test the way they've built it is that so many conditions or symptoms that people report in that they want a hormonal evaluation. It's not always a super clear story. And it's nice when you can say like, Oh, I think something might be going on with my libido. Let me check my estrogen, which is the hormone that surges mid cycle that gets you Mm -hmm. all feisty. (laughs) But if estrogen's normal, like what else could it be? Right. And so Mm -hmm. it's nice that that's all built into one panel so that providers can take a look at stress hormones, reproductive hormones, kind of get a bigger picture there. Yeah. It's been huge to be able to incorporate that piece into that hormone workup is getting Mm -hmm. those bigger picture for sure. Yeah. So what else would you think we should be teaching better on? Yeah. What are the questions that are coming into you that kind of identify we got to go back to school. Yeah. A couple of things. And it's a little, this should be obvious, but it's not always obvious. So one of the common things that we would see was um, someone who has a uterine ablation. So this is a process that kind of goes in totally lack of better terms, but it kind of is like singeing that uterine lining so that they don't have bleeding anymore. Some women will stop having periods altogether with it. Others may still get their period, but it might be much lighter, much more manageable. So oftentimes they're doing this for people who are having issues with heavy bleeding or, or persistent bleeding. Um, so this is, is a procedure that's done. However, once they stop having their period or their cycles, they'll often come in and say, well, I'm menopausal now and I need HRT because I'm not feeling well. And it, it, we're, we really didn't do anything to the ovaries. The ovaries are still fluctuating throughout the month. There was probably an imbalance in the first place. If that's why you had the, the ablation, because you were having heavy, persistent bleeding that never got corrected. So really, all you did was take away that vital sign that we were monitoring to say, oh, something's out of balance. But we never fixed the underlying root cause. We just maybe helped with bleed, you know, bleeding control, which is sometimes absolutely necessary if they're bleeding, you know excessively. This, this might be their only option if they're trying to preserve the uterus or whatnot. So um, lots. Of, there's so many different ways to approach this. This isn't the only way to do it. But when they're coming in and they're saying, I don't feel well and I have, you know, I'm still having all these, you know, hormonal symptoms and I think I'm in menopause because I'm not having my period anymore. I'm like, well, no, we, we artificially stopped the period. Your ovaries are still doing the fluctuation. 
This should also be very obvious with the partial hysterectomy. When we take the uterus out, mm -hmm. the ovaries are still left behind. You're still fluctuating. You still have those hormonal ups and downs. We just don't know where you're at in your cycle anymore because we don't have the bleed to kind of pull from anymore. So it, they'll say, well, they checked my hormone levels and they looked really low. But were they low for the follicular phase of the menstrual cycle or were they low for the luteal phase of the menstrual cycle? We're going to have different reference ranges and we don't really know where you're at in your cycle anymore because we don't have that uterine mm. piece to it. So it, it, should, it seems obvious to some of us, but it happened all the time where people are coming like, oh, they said I need to get started on HRT, but my... My hormones are really are really low and I'm not feeling well. And that can be really problematic for some patients who are still cycling or they're maybe really surging really high with estrogen at certain times of their menstrual cycle. And then if we're giving them estrogen replacement therapy on top of it, it's going to overshoot them even further, causing mm -hmm. even more problems. So it gets to become a very delicate balance of what do we do when we've purposely altered their bleeding cycles, whether it was through a partial hysterectomy with just the uterus removed or an ablation. And then also there's always, you know, the hormonal birth controls that are play a role into different things too. But yeah, interesting. Mm -hmm. And so would you think about doing like a cycle map in that case to help women kind of better mm -hmm. identify what's going on? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So with those patients, again, we would just kind of start like random collections for them. So when we're talking about the cycle mapping for Dutch, um, they're doing a urine sample multiple times throughout the month. And, and then there's instructions for them for when to collect. Um, but usually I have them do what we call the long cycle um, instructions so that we can try capture um, multiple measurements throughout the month. And then we can see, are there any fluctuations? Are they still ovulating? Are they staying estrogen excess throughout the whole month? Or are they really low? Do they look like a postmenopausal picture? Are we getting any signaling there? Um, and you can do ovulation predictor kits too, to sometimes help. Uh, determine if patients are still, you know, cycling or whatnot, but those can get expensive and add up too. Mm -hmm. But yeah, the cycle map piece for those types of patients who are still having major hormonal fluctuations and not knowing where they're at in their cycle, that can definitely shed a lot of light for them. Yeah. I mm -hmm. know that the cycle map is like not the biggest test we run. People like the panels, like the Dutch complete and Dutch plus where it shows mm -hmm. you you know, sex hormones, adrenal hormones, the oats and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But I love the cycle map. And I mean, <laughs> I, my practice is like fertility and yeah. mostly cycling women, but I find it to be so eye-opening, especially in cases that feel really confusing, like the patient's not matching what you would normally expect for their cycle or their symptoms of their cycle, their temps. And I do love it. And I love that we give like a short of one for short cycles and regular and long so that they can collect samples appropriately, but it can shed so much light on what's happening. And you're right when you're in that blind situation with no bleeding to kind of be like, oh, restart here, reset right here. We can actually tell you when that reset was mm -hmm. yeah. through that. And Absolutely. then we you know, it traces estrogen and progesterone throughout the cycle. So really a pretty yeah. cool test to be able to see more than just that snapshot time point yeah. that you get in serum. Yeah, Absolutely. And then, I mean, if you're postmenopausal, now that's the other thing too, is you're not considered full-blown postmenopausal until you've gone a whole year without a menstrual cycle. So this is very tricky, you know, so I wouldn't recommend the cycle mapping for someone who's postmenopausal, or maybe they knew they were really getting close to approaching it before they maybe had a hysterectomy or something. So then maybe it's not a great fit for them because then we would expect it to look really low throughout the month. But for those patients who probably were still cycling or had an ablation and and still in that premenopausal state, then that gives a lot of valuable data for those patients. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but perimenopause is a wild ride. So I don't think anyone prepa- prepares them for that either. So some women breeze through it. I tease them. I'm like, you're rare birds. Don't tell your family and friends. Most people have some sort of disruption when they go through perimenopause. So it's one of those like secrets that women hold that they sh- we should just tell each other what it's yeah. like. Like I remember that after I gave birth to my first child and my best friend from high school was over and, um, it was like three or four days postpartum, you know, right when your milk comes in. And she was like, hey, you know, I'm going to make you lunch. What kind of sandwich do you want? And I started crying and I was like, do I have to decide everything? Like, why can't you just decide what you're going to make me and then like make me the sandwich? And um, she, I would, then I was like, what is happening to me? You know, I felt like the movie Red Panda. What's the, not Red Panda. What's the new Disney movie where the girl turns into a red panda? Like in puberty, she doesn't know what's happening. Gosh, my I haven't seen it. Time. Yeah, I haven't seen it, but I know which one you're talking about. It's I, so good. Yeah, and yeah. Um, I'm going to think of it as a video <laughs> off the podcast. But she's like turning into a panda bear. And then she's like, what's going on? And that's really how I felt. And then, you know, my friend Karen was like, don't, you know, my sister went through this too. I think this is a normal thing. Like, you know, and I just remember feeling so hysterical. And I told my mom, like, why didn't you tell me this was going to happen? And I felt totally normal 24 hours later. But I'm like, dang, like this feels like wisdom that should be passed down from generation to generation to like worn women perimenopause seems like the next one that's coming for me like that (laughs) yeah it's it's just it's so unpredictable for everybody you know some months we're surging hormones you know estrogen's just shooting above range trying so hard to get those ovaries to have their last party and hurrah in there and the ovaries are like i am done i don't want to do this anymore Um, and then the next month all the levels are really low because they didn't ovulate and you know that signaling from the brain to the ovaries is declining with age as to be expected. And then again, the next month that might surge back up, or then they're skipping cycles for months on end. Very normal process that we go through, through that life stage. However, it does not feel normal when you're going through it. So mm. there's lots of things that we can do. Dutch test is amazing for helping kind of seeing what some of those downstream metabolites are doing and how the adrenals are keeping up and how can we support people through that process. But yeah, it's, it's a tricky one. It's yeah. tricky. And, it's, and like you described it just like perfect, like postpartum too, is like, it's almost like you're watching yourself up here act a fool <laughs> and you're like, who is this person? But you can't stop it. It's just, it's, it's, just it's on, it's going, it's on its tracks. Just let it get to its destination because you can't stop it. But you're watching yourself horrified, almost like, who is this person? <laughs> yeah, you did. That was my experience. So Turning yeah. Red is the name of the movie. Is it? Um, okay. I did think of it, but yeah, I mean, it is like an out of body experience almost, <laughs> yeah. so yeah. You know, I think perimenopause can be a beautiful time of like coming into yourself and kind of yeah. um, losing your tolerance for stuff that you probably should have lost a long time ago. Yeah. Um, coming into yourself in a new way. Yeah. You know, but I know for people, it's a, it can be a wild ride. And it is cool because I think like people probably don't realize, but as a clinical educator at Dutch, like you look at hundreds of tests a week. I mean, yeah. so when you talk about interpretation and the amount of data and value that you can get, like, when I joined the Dutch team, I was just blown away by, and I considered myself like well-schooled on Dutch. I use it in my practice with a lot of mm-hmm. patients. I probably run a hundred to 200 Dutch tests, maybe more, but it just made me realize like how much more there is that you can extract out of that when you mm-hmm. get to the level of experience that you have, because, you know, people might not know, but like every single test gets reviewed by a human being before mm-hmm. reports get released. And our doctor team like looks at them to make sure that if something looks out of whack, we either like ask the lab to rerun the sample or 
sometimes like things come up that will personalize the comments so mm-hmm. that we know we like help practitioners kind of hone in on what's happening. So for example, if we see something, I think there's been a couple of times where like Addison's or Cushing's has mm-hmm. been suggested by their results and it'll say the report, like our doctors will add the comment saying this patient should be evaluated mm-hmm. medically, you know? So we really, they, they look at them. And then of course, all the consultations that um, we do and all the training that we do. Yeah. helping practitioners interpret reports, which is just fascinating. Yeah. Oh, every day. It's it's cool to walk through the reports with, with providers just because, you know, everybody is trained differently. Everybody has different approaches, um, but we all can kind of sometimes get to the same destination. And so you, like as much as they learn from us, sometimes we're learning from them too. And yeah, it's, it's, a, it's cool. Totally. Mm-hmm. What are the other things that you just like wish you could let everybody know? Yeah. I mean, we kind of covered a lot of things like really needing to understand their menstrual cycle and the phases and tracking it. Um, knowing your fertile window is going to be much more successful for either preventing or trying for pregnancy. I would say understanding, you know, when you've had those medical procedures that have stopped your menstrual cycle, how that may not necessarily mean that you truly went through menopause. It's just, we altered it. Um, discharge is normal, you know, things like that. Um, other things too, that kind of come up that we're, this was kind of more fun where we would get the giggles in the office in the OBG office was, you know, someone had a baby and they were, um, hadn't got their cycle back yet, but they were having unprotected intercourse and they're like, how did I get pregnant? I didn't even get my period yet. And those were, yeah, you know, those are, those are kind of fun, fun for us to kind of giggle. Like I told you, I'd see you back in a year and you told me you were done having babies, you know, but Really what happens is, you know, their HPO or their, you know, their, I call it coming back online, their HPO access came back online, that signaling's there, the pregnancy hormones are out of the body, they maybe weren't breastfeeding, so you didn't, they weren't, you know, uh, necessarily having to worry about that component of it. But you likely are going to ovulate, not always, but you can ovulate before you trigger your next period, because, you know, we're building up, we're going from that follicular phase or building up, we ovulate and then we're going to go into our luteal phase. And if we don't get pregnant, then we'll have our period. So they very well probably had intercourse during a very, you know, ovulatory window. They just haven't had their first period yet. And Mm -hmm. so it happened frequently, commonly. Um, So we would say, you know, you still maybe want to use a backup method until you've gotten your first period. So then you can kind of start tracking of when ovulation would be. Um, the same What's the general go- rule for that? Like, what is the guidance that you give to women, like breastfeeding and not breastfeeding about? Yeah. That? Yeah. Great question. So the breastfeeding patients, you know, a lot of times they, they don't get a cycle when they're um, breastfeeding. So if they're going to do what we call like that lactation amenorrhea method where they're, you know, using that as their kind of form of birth control per se, um, they just haven't got their first it's only effective basically if they're exclusively and only breastfeeding in those first six months and they have not gotten a period back yet. Now, some women will get their period back before that six months. So then this, this technique no longer applies to them. But um, you should be less than six months postpartum, exclusively and only breastfeeding, not going more than four to six hours without feeding. Um, so if you got a, like a lucky one that sleeps through the night early on, you might kind of get outside of that window. And then now you might be at increase of getting pregnant. Um, and then obviously if you get your period before that six months, um, then that technique no longer would be applicable for them. Mm-hmm. Great. That's great and then I also encourage since the men probably are feeling left out on this spicy episode is if they had gotten, um, a vasectomy, 
uh, they really need to go back for follow-up to make sure that it was effective and that there's no, no swimmers getting through, for lack of better terms, because um, oftentimes they, they don't go back for that follow-up and they're still maybe a month or two months out from that procedure. And then yeah. they don't they get skip the follow-up. It don't skip the follow-up. Yeah, it happens more than they'd like to admit. So that's always an interesting conversation too. They're, they're like blaming yeah. their wife for like infidelity when really they just yeah. never followed up to get the yeah. sample checked. Oopsie. Yeah. Oopsie. Yeah. Pregnancies are awesome. I mean, I'm yeah. all about pregnancy, but like, yeah. it's always better when you want it and you like are planning for it. Yeah. <laughs> Not yeah. the Irish twins method or the yes. failed vasectomy method. I mean, those are not yeah. the best surprises probably. Yeah. Those ones can be a little stressful for people. So yeah. 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 Well, Is there awesome. anything you think I forgot? Like, I mean, I feel like- Gosh, kind of- I mean, we've covered so much and yeah. I, I think we've really, really shared a lot about, you know- what are the things, the gaps that people come in? And I think as providers, it's so nice to be able to share, like, this is the information that a lot of patients are like embarrassed to ask about, or not mm-hmm. just patients, like healthcare providers. I mean, if you don't work with women day in and day out, mm-hmm. and your exposure was like gynecology class, you know, six years ago, and you're not doing it all the time, like, it can be hard to ask the questions. And, and I will say, like, we talk to providers who still have questions about what happens hormonally during the menstrual cycle. And that's okay. It's a learning process. I mean, you've been doing this for like over a decade. We still learn new things all the time. That's science, you know? So it's great to have the opportunity to bring these things up in a safe environment so that people can kind of get clarity around those things that are common misconceptions. And, you know, I would say, we probably do a better job educating than like our high school health class teacher um, (laughs) in a room full of like giggling adolescents where we are just embarrassed to be there. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. So you can listen to this podcast from the safety of your home or your car, you know, all alone. (laughs) Yeah. No. And I think it would, it would be good. And honestly, it's just something that needs to be taught over and over, you know, when they're young and kind of figuring it out of these this is kind of like the normal biology. This is what I should know and expect from my body. And if something's off, probably need to deep dive a little bit more. Definitely. Well, Lindsay, it's been super fun. Thank you for spending your Valentine's day with me and talking about this juicy topic. And uh, (laughs) thanks for being here. Yeah. Thanks for having me. We'll chat later. Chat later. And thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in today too. come back next week for more hormone education, just like this. And if you're enjoying the Dutch podcast, help us spread the word by commenting and sharing it wherever you listen. Don't forget to also follow at Dutch Test on Instagram and Facebook for news, education, and provider resources. And if you're a healthcare provider who's struggling to find answers to complex patient concerns, registering as a Dutch provider will give you the tools you need to profoundly change the lives of your patients. Dutch providers receive advanced hormone education comprehensive test results, clinical support, and so much more. Just visit DutchTest.com and click on providers at the top of the page and we'll help you get started. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next week. 